Welcome to another episode of Monday Morning Motivation. I'm your host, Morty Liss. Here on Monday Morning Motivation, we discuss the human psyche, what makes us tick, and how we can not only survive, but thrive through our week. This week, we have Mrs. Brooke Pearl Toporovich back for another episode of the podcast. Mrs. Toporovich is the author of three books, Sparks of Radiance, From Darkness to Dawn, and her most recent release, Amazing Hypnotherapy Tales. Her books are available through Mosaica Press, Feldheim, and Amazon. Links for her books will be provided in the show notes. If you missed it, please see episode 48 for our interview with Mrs. Toporovich focusing on hypnosis and hypnotherapy. This interview is going to be a little different. In this week's episode, we hear that with faith, hope, and tenacity, we can always focus on the good. Mrs. Toporovich's message conveys that no matter how tough the situation may seem, we should we should never forget that God is always watching over us. We need to maintain our faith that Hashem gives us the ability to reframe our situation so that we can truly see the good in everything. And this paradigm shift is something that all of us possess. The challenge is to, to tap into it when the time comes for us to face the adversity and reframe our perspective to truly see how good Hashem is to us. First, a little background and a basis for what this interview is about. In Jerusalem, on August 19th, 2003, a very crowded, double-egged number two bus that left from the Kotel, the Western Wall, exploded on Shmuel Navi Street. The media dubbed it the children's bus bombing, as so many children were killed or injured. Both Hamas and Islamic Jihad claim responsibility for the terrorist attack. It, the suicide bomber was a 29-year-old Islamic extremist from Hebron, dressed up as a Haredi Jew. In fact, Professor Yehuda Hiss, a chief pathologist in Israel, stated, It's one of the worst terrorist attacks, both because of the large number of victims and the difficulty of identifying them, and because among the victims are children. This suicide bomber managed to kill 24 people and injured more than 130 individuals. Mrs. Toporovich's daughter, son-in-law, and three of her grandchildren were on the bus during the bombing, and one of her granddaughters was unfortunately killed in the attack. During this conversation, Mrs. Toporovich will give over her experience of this horrific night and the days, weeks, and months that followed. She will show us how one can not only accept challenges, but actively find the good in everything Hashem does for us. This episode is is in the merit for Fruish Lima, speedy and full recovery, for Chana Shifra Bas Bracha Pearl. She is Mrs. Toporovich's daughter, a victim of that terror attack, who recently had surgery over 19 years later as a result of injuries from the explosion. Mrs. Toporovich will be conducting a Midos workshop for women, a perfect way to prepare for Rosh Hashanah. She will teach how to get rid of negative character traits and how to develop positive character traits instead. It starts tomorrow, Tuesday, September 6th. If you would like more details, please email her at brachatop at gmail.com. That's B-R-A-C-H-A-T-O-P at gmail.com. Without further ado, our interview with Bracha Pearl Toporovich. Hello, Mrs. Toporovich. Thank you so much for joining us again. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for inviting me. I feel privileged to have the opportunity to talk about this subject. Yeah, so, so on that note, let's jump right into it. I know about 19, 20 years ago, you had some family involved in a, in a terrorist attack. Can you please just share your experience? Yes, for sure. Um, 
Ever since my daughter and her family were victims of a bus bombing, a terrorist bus bombing, I have been talking about what happened then. And the reason why I keep on talking about it, I mean, we're talking about an episode that happened 19 years ago. So why keep on talking about it? Why not go on to other more recent subjects? Um, the reason I keep on talking about it is because I personally was involved. It was my family, number one. So I have an emotional tie to this bus bombing. But more than that is because of the very, very strong messages that I saw, that I heard coming out of this tragedy. Um, so I don't know if you remember, if, if the people listening remember, but uh, in on August 19th, this was the 22nd day of Av, 19 years ago, 2003, there was a bus, the number two bus that left the Kotel Maravi, the Western Wall. Uh, it was a double bus, you know, attached with an accordion, packed full of people. And these were all religious people coming from praying at the Kotel Maravi. They got on this bus. A few stops later, it exploded on Shmuel Hanavi Street. This was one of the worst terror attacks in Israel because there was so many people involved. I'm talking about 22 people, Jewish people, 22 Jewish souls were taken, 22 Kedoshim killed, and another 130 people injured. And wow. some of these injuries are um, like losing an eye, losing a limb. We're talking about some of these were very serious injuries. So it was one of the worst bus bombings. And not only that, it was very difficult to identify some of the victims because of the bodies were so mutilated. And, and another reason is because there were so many children involved, either children killed or injured. So the media dubbed, they gave a name to this bus bombing, the children's bus bombing. So this was an unbelievable story. I mean, it was so shocking to the world and especially to the Jewish world. Um, the stories went around the world. And my daughter was on that bus. My daughter, Hannah Shifra, Nathan's son with her entire family, her husband, three daughters. And um, my son-in-law's little sister, young sister, was on the bus as well. So four of the five members of the family survived. The three-year-old, Tehillah Hashem Yimkom Dama, was turned into one of the Kadoshim. So... Why do I talk about this? I mean, the moment I left the hospital, when we came home from the hospital, I started talking wherever I was invited to speak, I went to speak. Because again, there was a tremendous arousal. There was a tremendous spiritual arousal. I mean, the story itself was so touching. Um, you know, so many children and, and, and so tragic. But what was very, very interesting is that there were also Americans on the bus <laughs> because you have Americans on the bus, you know, the news goes a little further. My daughter's American and there were other families that were American, the Taubenfelds, they lost a mother and a baby and a, and a daughter was injured. And I believe there was another American family, if I'm not mistaken. So these stories went around the world. I mean, we got calls from all over the place. We got calls from America, from England, from Switzerland. They read the stories in the newspapers and they kept on calling and trying to give us strength and encouragement and you know compassion whatever so you know we have to whenever something like this happens we need to question we need to talk about it we need to think about it at least to some degree why is this happening what does Hashem want from us now we are right now Chodesh Elul the month before Rosh Hashanah and 
we should be introspecting at this time of year. I mean, that's <laughs> that's what El was given to us to do introspection, to prepare for Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment. You know, to examine ourselves to see what we have to do, what we have to change, where we have to become better. You know, we shouldn't waste the opportunity. Okay, the yard side of these twenty-two kedoshim. You know, the day of the of the bombing was just a few days ago, mm-hmm. August. It was August nineteen, just you know, a short while ago. So. <sighs> You know, the story comes up and the feelings come up. And it's very important to rouse up the feelings. Why? Because, you know, when we hear tragedy after tragedy, we tend to become numb. You know, oh, another tragedy, another tragedy. You know, people get upset right away in the moment. And then they forget and they become numb, sort of numbed out. And this is very dangerous because we have to think about it. Why does Hashem give us? something of this nature, a tragedy of this nature. Why is it happening? Um, and so many stories. I mean, we don't have to go 19 years back. We, you know, just uh, a very short while ago, the Miron tragedy, 45 Jewish, holy Jewish people were taken from us, you know. So we, we need to question, what does Hashem want? Hashem is not being cruel. Hashem wants to arouse us, and people want arousal. People want spiritual arousal. I mean, not everybody, obviously, but, you know, thinking people, thinking Jewish people want spiritual arousal. And people want to understand. They want to make, take some kind of meaning out of tragedy, right? If a tragedy happens and it's totally ununderstood, it's total confusion, then what did you gain from it? But if you can take some meaning out of it, Okay, make it meaningful, then it didn't happen for nothing. Okay, it's not wasted, not for nothing. Exactly. It's yes, there, there's purpose in it. We, we know that everything Hashem does has a purpose, you know, He doesn't just do things, everything is calculated by Hashem, you know. And we have to understand that Hashem is trying to rouse us and trying to push us in a certain direction. That was my feeling. You know, when tragedy strikes. You know, we, we always say that you never get more than you can handle, that God knows exactly how much a person can handle and won't give him more pain or more suffering that he can actually bear, you know, not break from it. We, we say that. Uh, how do we see it in real life? It doesn't always appear that way in real life. But that is the truth. That Hashem knows exactly how much suffering people can take. And it's all given out in, in exact measure. So when Hashem gives suffering, again, the question arouses, what does he want? What does he want? How does he want us to respond? You know, what's the purpose of it? How do we find the meaning? How do we find the meaning? And as a result, how do we respond? Mm. Action, you know, you know, how do we respond? I mean, not just to intellectually understand that, okay, Hashem wanted us to give us this and this message, but it's not just an intellectual exercise. How do we end up living our lives as response? So Chazal have told us that when Hashem sends tragedy and we do teshuva, we're actually behaving with cruelty, not insensitivity. We're behaving with cruelty. And why is that? Because Hashem wanted a certain response. And if we don't come up with that response, in other words, we were too numbed out or we didn't think into it enough, you know, we didn't feel into it enough and we just let it slide over us, 
right? Where we didn't respond in the way Hashem wanted. Then he has to give another tragedy to wake us up and another tragedy to wake us up and another one and another one to wake us up. I mean, I'll give you a simple example, a crude example. If a house was on fire and the rescuers run into the house to save somebody that's sleeping in the house. So obviously they have to wake the person up to get them out in order to save him, him, her. Now, what if the person doesn't wake up? They yell, they yell, they scream. The person doesn't wake up. So they start shaking him. He doesn't wake up. So they start hitting him. He doesn't wake up. Pouring ice cold water over him. He doesn't wake up. So in the end, there is no choice. Take him and throw him out the window in order to save his life. Mm -hmm. So this is what I'm trying to say with the tragedy. When tragedy doesn't create the right response, like wake up, you're sleeping, you're in a coma, then there has to be a stronger hit and a stronger and a stronger until we finally wake up. So this, this idea is very, very apparent in the Purim story. In the Purim story, we know exactly what happened. You know, there was a decree on the entire Jewish nation to annihilate every single Jew in the world. Because, why? You know what uh, our commentators tell us? That we were asleep. The Jewish people were asleep. Haman says to Ahasuerus, yesh no amachad. There is a nation. And the word yesh no, our commentators explain it. Yeshenim, Yeshenim and Hamitzvot, they were sleeping. They weren't doing their mitzvahs. They weren't connected to Hashem. They were in a coma-like state. And that's why the decree was put upon them. So what does Hashem do? He puts such a strong decree upon them that they have to wake up. Wake up, do teshuva, go back to Hashem. And that's exactly what happened. So this is how we have to understand every single tragedy, every single, so to speak, quote-unquote, punishment that Hashem sends to it. It's in order to give us some kind of a message, midah connected midah, measure for measure, right? It teaches us something. Like if the Miraglim, the spies, did a sin with their tongues, so they were punished through their tongues. That's how they died, right? You know, mm-hmm. if right. you read Chumash, you know, their tongues stretched out up until their belly buttons and worms came out of their tongues and entered their belly buttons, and that's how they died. So... It's also for the people observing what was happening to the Miraglim. They also are getting the message, you better watch your tongue, right? It's not only the people who sinned and died, but the, the ones observing as well that's supposed to get this message. So I'm in the hospital with my injured daughter, and I and the family, the entire family was injured. And one of the daughters, the three-year-old, Loaleno, Hashemikam Damatihila, was killed. So yeah, again... If you don't try to make sense of what's going on, you can fall apart, right? Mm-hmm. And I believe that Hashem gives strength to everybody. I believe that in times of tragedy, the best of us comes out because we have to exert ourselves to get through the situation, right? Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of times people will say later on, I don't know how I did it. I don't know how I got through that. I don't, I don't know how I survived that. Because somehow or other, it squeezes the best out of us. You know, it's like, I remember this muscle, this this metaphor from Rabbi Tauber. I, I lived in Muncie for many years, and that's where Rabbi Israel Tauber lived, and I love the Shalaman. And he gave us this metaphor in one of the shirim, and many of the shirim. He would say, you know, when Hashem squeezes you, gives you tragedy, gives you suffering, he squeezes you. Well, think of a dried lemon, where there seems to be no more juice left. But if you squeeze it hard enough, you'll get another few drops. And, and I saw this happening. I saw that the best was coming out in us. But, you know, I'll get to the story in a moment. I'm just giving you a little bit of an introduction to the story because I want to make it more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, so let's go back again to the question, why? Okay. What does Hashem want eventually? You know, like what's the end of the journey for us? Redemption, the final redemption. We're waiting for the final redemption. Somehow or other, it seems to be dependent on us. We have to do what we have to do in order to get to the, the Geulah Shalem, in order to get to Mashiach. And um, if we don't do it on our own, so Hashem pushes us. Hashem sort of, you know, nudges us in that direction. And um, that's what I saw happening here. That the kind of things, the kind of responses that I saw in the tragedy, and that's exactly what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the beautiful and the good things that happen, not about the awesome details, the gruesome details. The gruesome details you can leave for the newspapers, but the greatness and the goodness, you know, the quality, you know, the positive qualities that came out of it. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the achdus, the unity. It was such a great unity. I had never experienced such unity among Jewish people before. I'll go into details in a moment. And then there were so many acts of chesed, loving kindness, from every single type of person. I mean, again, I'll go into details very soon. And then there was the Kiddush Hashem. Sanctification of Hashem's name. From the first moment, from day one, there was so much Kiddush Hashem. And of course, you have to realize that, you know, we were giving interviews to the newspaper on and on and on and on. I mean, over and over again, this was like very unusual. My, you know, I don't know if people remember this time. We're talking about 19 years ago. Around that time, there were a lot of terror bombings, you know, um, very like sometimes there were even two in one day. There were very many. And every single a terrorist attack, you know, terror tragedy of this kind. It's, 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 you know, the people involved, the people that are killed, they are killed on Kiddush Hashem. What that means is if they were killed because they were Jews, they are considered Kedoshim, right? Doesn't matter the level of, of observance, of Torah observance. You know, doesn't matter if they died wanting to be a Jew and wanting to sanctify God's name. Most of the commentators say, most of the commentators say that if a person was killed by Kiddush Hashem because he was a Jew, it doesn't matter the level of observance. It doesn't matter if he wanted to die for Hashem or not. He's considered a Kadosh, someone who sanctifies Hashem's name, and he gets the most lofty place in Olam Haba. So every single one of these tragedies is tragic. Except in this story, it seems to be even more tragic. <laughs> and why is that? Because all the people involved, they were all very kosher holy Jews. You have to remember, they all came from the Kotel, from, that, from praying at the Western Wall, praying at the Kotel Maravi. They had just, um, it, was to, it was evening time, so they had just prayed Tfilat Arvit, the evening prayer. They had said Shema Yisrael, which means you take on the yoke of heaven, right, upon yourself. And coming from that situation, they get on a bus and they get exploded. Okay? So all those 22, there was a Filipino woman she, that was also killed, but all, the rest of the people, the 22 Jewish people, were all highly observant, you know, you could say, quote-unquote, kosher Jews. And of course, the children. Children have no sins. There's, they don't have to have a kapara for anything, an atonement. They're sinless. 
You know, even when we talk about our granddaughter who was only three years old, we never say le'ilu nishmas to elevate her soul. She doesn't need an elevation because she never sinned. We say lezecher nishmat in remembrance of her soul. So what I want to say here, these were all kosher holy Jews and they all had just taken upon themselves the yoke of heaven and this thing happens, right? So why? Again, the question, why? Why? What does Hashem want? Okay, we can say they are a carbon seaboard. You know, that's why people explain it. They are sacrifices for the entire congregation, carbon seaboard. But but let's look a little bit deep, a little bit deeper. You know, when we're talking about Geula, we're talking about the final redemption. We're talking about that I'm Israel, the Jewish nation, and Hashem will be finally united. And it's described by our sages like a marriage, a very intimate, close relationship, just like a marriage, right? Mm-hmm. That's how Shir Hashirim describes the relationship between Knesset Israel, which is the bride, you know, the nation of Israel, the bride, and Hashem, the groom. You know, I mean, Shir Hashem is just, you know, you cannot read it at shot level, you know, it's at, at surface level. It's all deeper and deeper meanings. But this is what we are, we're told, that this is a relationship, it's a love relationship between Hashem and us. Hashem wants, so to speak, to finalize this marriage. So that we get to that highest, deepest level, that deepest connection that is possible. Now, of course, we have no idea what that really means, you know. But we're talking about a connection to Hashem, which will be everlasting. It will go on for eternity. That is what we're waiting for, right? We know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a man, so I don't put on the tefillin. I don't wrap the straps of the tefillin around my arms. But if I look in the sitter, anybody can look in the sitter. As a man wraps the tefillin around his arms and around his finger, what do the words say? I'm going to take you as my wedded, so to speak, forever. And there's even a commentator or two that says, as the straps are being wrapped around the finger, it looks like engagement rings. And that's the word we use. I'm going to be, Hashem says, I'm going to be wedded to you forever. This is the Navi speaking. Navi Hoshea is telling us that's what we're waiting for. So what we understand is, is that it's not only we who are suffering. It's as much a Kodesh Baruch who's suffering as we are. I mean, Hashem is in Golis with us. We say this. Shechenta begaluta. The Shechen is in Golis. Right? Imo anochi v'tzara. You think you're suffering? Hashem is suffering with us. Hashem probably suffers much, much more than we suffer. Right? Because he doesn't want this to happen to his beloved. Right? You know, again, the, the sages tell us when Hashem destroyed the Beis HaMikdash, it's the mashal, the metaphor is that it's like a husband whose wife sinned and she sinned in a big way and the husband is angry at her and he destroys the house and he sends her into exile, right? That's, the, that's what the sages tell us. It's exactly, that seems to be exactly what was going on with the destruction of Beit HaMikdash. But the husband doesn't want this to be the situation. He wants to bring her home. He wants to rebuild the house, the home, right? Reunite with her. And that's... That's what the Gutlish Shlema will be. It will be the reunification. It will be the consummation of that marriage. And that's what we have to understand. When we suffer, Hashem is suffering also. 
is not trying to punish. It's trying to push us in a certain direction. And that's what I saw happening with the unity, the achdut, with the chesed, the loving kindness that people were doing for each other, with the kiddush Hashem, which... Okay, I, I started saying, and I didn't finish, I started saying that when there were many, many bus bombings and terror attacks at that time. Uh, people may remember that there was Dr. Applebaum and his daughter Nava the night before her wedding. They were, they were killed in a cafe. That was a very short while after this number two bus bombing, maybe a week or two later. And there were numerous, numerous. Now, normally, and this was my experience, when a tragedy, uh, a terrible attack happens, so it's in the newspaper, the first date's in the newspaper, the newspaper song, the people, what happened, this is what happened. The next day, they're talking about the Levias, the funerals. The day after that, it's not in the news anymore. It's old news. They're on to new news. You don't hear about it anymore. It's gone. But that wasn't our experience. Our experience was that the reporters were coming back again and again and again and again. Two weeks later, we were still being interviewed. Now, why? Because they were hearing things they had never heard before. That's what they want to bring out. The kids of Shashem, I mean, these reporters were blown away. I gave so many interviews to secular people. And, you know, sometimes I could see the tears in their eyes because wow. of what they were hearing from us, which they maybe, maybe never heard before. You know, let's take a secular person after bus bombing or any kind of terror attack. What are they, what are they saying? They're saying, down with the government revenge, you know, they don't know how to protect us, and there's anger, and there's feelings that we're not being taken care of, or we're not being protected, and how can we have such a government, and the feeling is screaming and upset, right? And then this, not, this didn't happen with this tragedy, with this tragedy, these were all religious people, all more or less saying the same thing, Hashem gives, and Hashem takes, you know, what can we do to improve ourselves? What can we do to be better people? Like, it wasn't about the government and the Arabs. It was about us. And this was so amazing. This is what roused those reporters. to. They, they, they wanted to hear, I don't know if they wanted to hear this, but they just kept on coming back again. They didn't know what to expect. They could not believe it. You know, a, a person who's talking about their child who died and they say, Hashem gives and Hashem takes and it's not mine. It's not my possession. It's like Hashem knows what he's doing. Kiddush. I mean, um, Kabbalat Adin, the acceptance of what Hashem has done and looking at it in a positive way. Hashem knows what he's doing. He's running the world. We're not running the world. Hashem is running the world. He knows what he's doing. So I'm going to go into a lot of different examples. I just want to get the introduction so we understand why do I still talk about it? And especially now, Chodesh Elul, getting ready for Rosh Hashanah, you know, introspection, what do I need to change? What does Hashem want of us? I think we all understand that Hashem wants unity. I think we know that that is a very big problem, the lack of unity. I mean, I'm not just talking about what goes on in the government in Israel, <laughs> but, you know, even amongst yourselves, right? Even amongst the religious. Um, it's, it's a very, it's very difficult. It's a difficult subject. Um, so, you know, when people are hurting, when, when they've been injured, when they go through suffering, of course they pray. They pray for salvation, you know, whatever they're praying for. Uh, if it's Parnassa, if it's, um, I don't know, whatever people pray for, right? When we pray, when we daven, we have to daven not only for ourselves, 
but also for our fellow man, Am Yisrael. Now we have to feel like we are all one family. That's exactly what we felt at the time. We are one family. We are united. We care about each other. It's not like something happened to someone else. Something happened to my sister, my brother, my mother, my father, my husband, my wife, my child. That was the feeling. And that's the name of the organization that helps victims of terror, by the way. There's a very amazing organization that helped us in a very big way. And they are called One Family for this reason, because that's what they want to engender, this feeling of we are one family. Um, so again, the kids of Shoshan, it was like amazing. And that's why we got so many calls from around the world because people were re- reading these, you know, in the Jerusalem Post and in all these papers, the stories and the things that people said, myself and other people who gave the interviews. And again, we got calls from all over America and England and, 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 and Switzerland and because people were roused. People were really, really roused. One of my husband's friends, got on a plane from Muncie and came to America and came to Israel just so he could give a little bit of encouragement and and help, whichever kind of help he could give, you know, as a friend, you know? So we have to understand when the Geula comes, we're going to have a day Samikdash again. We know, we talk about it. We don't really exactly know what that means. I mean, open miracles, you know, we never experienced that, but in the base of Samikdash, we had korbanos, we had sacrifices and a sacrifice, you know, Hashem doesn't need an animal. Hashem doesn't eat animals. Hashem doesn't need a gift, so to speak. Hashem doesn't have to be appeased by sacrificing a lamb to him. That's not why Hashem commanded us to bring sacrifices. A carbon is for us. It's something for It's about us. When we put that animal on the altar, right, and it's slaughtered, for Hashem, you know, the word korban, if you look at the word korban, you have the letters karov, kufresh beis, karov means to become close, mm-hmm. we get closer to Hashem, a korban brings us close, a Jew has to think when he puts the animal on the altar, it's as though he would be ready to sacrifice himself on the altar, he would be ready to spill his blood for Hashem, he would be ready to be burnt up for Hashem, that's what a korban is, that's supposed to do, and that is an atonement. Now, we don't have that today. We don't have that kind of atonement. So what do we have instead? Instead of karbanas, we have tefillah, prayer, right? Onashama, parim, sefaseinu. That onashama, you know, as instead of the parim, the animal sacrifice, the sefaseinu, our lips, our lips in prayer. So prayer is instead of karbanos. And that means to say that if we don't want karbanos, if we don't want sacrifices of our children and our, and, and our you know, Jewish people, if we don't want them to be taken as a carbon seabor, you know, carbon for the, for the congregation, then we have to improve in our davening, in our prayers. Okay, because this is the other side of karbanos. This is what's going to balance out karbanos. This is what we can do instead of karbanos, prayer. So one of the things my daughter Hani asked all of her visitors, and she had a lot, a lot of visitors in the hospital. You know, refl- you know, was one reason, and Nichomavelim, you know, she was she was mourning a child, right? She had a lot of visitors, and this is what she said to every single person who came to her: Daven better, Daven better, not Daven more. You know, and instead of only Shacharit, Shacharit, and Mincha, she didn't mean Daven more; she meant Daven better. 
put more feeling into it, more intention, think about the words, feel the closeness to Hashem, feel like you're talking directly to Hashem, whatever it is. That's one of the things she said. And this, so we're getting here a few messages now. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm building a picture here now, okay? So it's davening and getting that closeness to Hashem, bringing ourselves close to Hashem through tefillah. And tefillah doesn't only mean when you open the sitter. That's one form of tefillah. That's the formal tefillah when you open the siddur and you daven from within the words of the siddur. But real tefillah, and, and in other words, tefillah doraita, tefillah, the original tefillah from the Torah is what you daven from the heart. When you have a need, you turn to Hashem. And that could be very mundane. It could be very mundane. Hashem, where are my car keys? I can't find my car keys. I have to get to the appointment. Now, where are my car keys? Hashem, please. You know, it sounds very mundane, very superficial. But what does it show Hashem? Hashem shows the, it shows Hashem that we turn to him in time of need, no matter what the need is, right? And of course, they say there is no atheist in the foxhole. Right. Meaning to say, when your life is in danger, everybody seems to turn to God because there's no, it seems to be no other way out. Okay. So, so to feel it. So when I dive into my own personal suffering at the same time, let me remember that I'm davening also for the whole Jewish Olam, that the world should become rectified. And I'm davening for Hashem, for Hashem's pain, that Hashem should be taken out of Golut and build the Beit HaMikdash, build his holy home, which is our home. So that's one thing. And then again, we're going to talk about the Achdut, the unity, and how, you know, different stories, different examples, and the Chesed and the Kiddush Hashem. So I want to just say one other word about tefillah, the importance of tefillah. People may not know this, and this is very important for us to know. You know, we don't know the power of tefillah. Why don't we know the power of tefillah? Because we don't see what happens in heaven. We don't see the results of our, of our prayers. Like if people pray for a person, a sick person, he shouldn't die. And they pray and pray and pray, he shouldn't die. And the end, he dies. So they think Hashem didn't listen. But that's not true. Hashem didn't listen in the way he, we wanted him to listen. But he took that prayer for healing and he used that prayer for someone else. In other words, there is no prayer that goes unanswered. Every single prayer goes answered, except we don't always see it because it doesn't always come down to the world in the way we wanted or expected. So sometimes it'll be for the person we're praying for, and sometimes it'll be used for someone else to heal someone else or to bring a baby to someone else or whatever. And sometimes it'll even be used for us, for our own healing in the future. I heard this from, I, I don't make anything up. I, I hear all of this from, from great people. Um, sometimes we may be praying, you know, I should, that my own sickness should be healed. My own, I don't know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to go through a certain surgery or whatever it is. And it doesn't happen. I have to go through that surgery. But my prayer may be stored away in heaven for a future time, for a time when I cannot pray for myself. In other words, I later on in some future time, Chatzvashalm, a person could be in an accident, unconscious, and they don't have the ability to pray at that time. One of those prayers that was stored away can be used for him at that time, okay? Or even for his future generations. So no prayer goes in answer. Now, prayer is so powerful, but we don't understand it because we don't see the results always. Sometimes we do but I want to go even deeper into another idea that you may not be aware of, okay? And this is really, really important to know. 
we know that we are now suffering at the hands of the Arabs, right? I mean, we can all see it. You live in America, but you know the stories, right? You know about the, well, it's not only America, right? Twin Towers, right? It's, I mean, it's all over, but of course it's more in Israel, but it happened, you know, we suffer at the hands of the Arabs and many, many, many different ways, right? This is called by our sages, Galut Yishmael. Now what's Galut Yishmael? We know that the fourth Galus that we're in is called Galut Edom. You know, Rome destroyed the second Beit HaMikdash and it's called Galut Edom. At the end of Galut Edom, the end before Mashiach comes is called Galut Yishmael, right? This is what our sages tell us. Um, there was a very great sage in the time of the, of the Gemara, Atana, by the name of Rabbi Eliezer. And Rabbi Eliezer wrote Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. So anybody wants to check this out, Look at Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, he talks about the Galut Yishmael. So at the end of days, this is what he says, when the children of Yishmael will fall upon us, this is just before the time of Shiach. Now, let us think about this. What is the basis or the foundation of Yishmael coming into the world? I go to the story in Bereshit, you know, open up a Chumash and go to Bereshit and look how Yishmael came into the world. Remember the story, whoever learns Chumash, remember the story. Avram married a second wife, Hagar, right? And she got pregnant, more or less right away. She got pregnant with the she was pregnant. And, and because of this, she was degrading, deriding her matriarch, Sarah. You know, oh, look, look at you and look at me. You don't, have, you don't get pregnant. You don't have a baby, but I... The servant woman, I got pregnant right away, and she was deriding Sarah. And because of that, Sarah... I don't, I don't know how to say it exactly in the right words, but Sarah hurt her, made her feel bad, you know, uh, created some kind of suffering for Hagar, okay? And Hagar runs away. She runs to the Midbar, right? Open the Chumash, it's right there. And she cries to Hashem. She cries. She cries. She weeps. She prays. And then the Malach Hashem appears to her and talks to her. You know, this wasn't a simple woman. If the angel or Malach Hashem talks to her. So what does the Malach say? He says she should go back home. She should go back to the house of Sarah. And he says, the Yaladit Ben, you're going to have a son, the Karachimo Yishmael, and call his name Yishmael. The Malach is telling her, call him Yishmael. Why? Ki Hashem El Anyech. Ki Hashem El Anyech. Because God heard you are crying out. Shama, right? Yishmael. El. Hashem heard you are crying. So the foundation of Yishmael is the foundation of prayer. That's how he comes and into the world on the, on the prayers of, of Hagar, his mother. Yishmael has a spiritual power. He has a spiritual foundation. You remember that the Arabs pray five times a day. Mm-hmm. They pray to the one God. They pray to the God of Abraham. That's the same God that we pray to, right? They have spiritual power. Now, they also do Brit Milah, right? Ishmael did a Brit Milah at age 13, and, and that's what the Arabs do till today. They have spiritual power, not just um, the physical or whatever. Of course, they're using their spiritual power in the wrong way. You know, they fight a holy war. That's what they say. A jihad is a holy war, so to speak, for God's sake. You know, that's what they say. They took their spiritual power. Of course, it's perverted. It's used in the wrong way. It's not used in the way that Hashem wants them to use it. It's a perverted, but it is spiritual power. 
And the power of tefillah, of prayer, is part of what they have. Okay? So how do we overcome that? How can we overcome that? By our prayer. If our prayer becomes better and more sincere and more real and connects us more to Hashem, that's what's going to give us the ability to overcome their spiritual, perverted spiritual power. It's a battle of prayer, effectively. Yes, yes. And it doesn't matter that they pray five times a day. We can pray three times a day. We can pray one time a day. But it has to be the right kind of prayer. It has to be connecting us to Hashem. It has to be dependence on Hashem. It has to know that everything that happens in the world comes from Hashem. And Hashem is the answer to the solution, you know, the solution to everything. So that's why prayer is so important. That's another reason why prayer is so important, because Yishmael is torturing us now. Yishmael, Hashem heard, Hashem heard Hagar's prayers, okay? So we better, and whichever way we can. And again, again, it's not necessarily only from the sitter. It's when you talk to Hashem all day long, seeing Hashem as a real entity. I mean, you can't really, you can't see him, but just feeling, feeling Hashem as a real entity. So I gave a very long introduction, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I hope it's going to make meaningful what comes next, because now I'm going to talk about the actual story of what happened, and the amazing, amazing examples of the Achdut and the Chesed and the Kiddush Hashem. Okay, so, oh, and before I just get into the story again, there's another little piece of introduction I want to say, is that, again, we're waiting for Geula Shalema. We daven, we pray for Geula Shalema. We're praying for the Beis HaMikdash. We're praying we should have no more korbanot from our children, but korbanot and Beit HaMikdash, right? But I saw something very interesting, and this didn't happen during the time of the Pigua. This happened later on, you know, later on when I was continuing to introspect. Okay, I saw something very interesting. When Hashem takes us as His holy nation, okay? We know that Hashem took us, so to speak, from all the nations. It says, I'm going to take you for me for a nation, a holy nation. And I saw this word coming up again and again, the word ekach. I'm going to take, I take. The ekach is davichem evahanahar. We say this in the Haggadah on Pesach night. It's a post from Yehoshua. The ekach atavichem, and I took your forefather, Abraham, from the other side of the river. He was a founding father, right? So the word ekach. And again and again, in relationship, the Ekach HaSalavim, and I'm going to take the Levites. The Ekach HaTroshei HaShvatim, I'm going to take the heads of tribes. The word Ekach came up again and again. As I looked for it, as I searched for it, I found it again and again. There's even a puzzle in Bereshit, which says, The Ekach Ota Lilisha. The Ekach Ota Lilisha. I'm going to take her for my wife. Now, this is not talking about Hashem. This is talking about Paro says he wants to take Sarah, Sarai, as his wife. But again, the Torah has multiple meanings and very many, many levels of meaning. I looked at that pasuk, you know, not a face level. The ekachot osa lili isha, I'm going to take her for my wife. Again, this is the way the relationship between us and Hashem is described, that Hashem takes us as a wife, right? So this word ekach was reverberating in my mind. Ekach, alef kufchet. Aleph Kufchet, what did that word tell me? The Aleph standing for Achdut, the Kuf standing for Kiddush Hashem, the Chet standing for Chesed. Ah, if we do Ekach, Aleph Kufchet, Achdut, Kiddush Hashem, Chesed, then Hashem will do 
ekach or tekas and bring and bring the geula. Okay, this is my own interpretation. I didn't see this written anywhere. It's just something that fell into my mind. As again, as I was trying to make meaning out of everything that was happening. So what I saw was Hashem is pushing us in that direction of Ekach so that he can finalize this, this very long exile and bring it to its conclusion, right? So again, you know, many, many people are killed on Kiddush Hashem and that's a very high level these people, again, nothing to do with the level of observance of the mitzvahs, according to most commentators, to most opinions. No matter what kind of a Jew they were, if they were killed because they were a Jew, they are considered a kadosh and they sanctify Hashem's name. Now, that is a very high level. And sometimes in the time of, you know, when, when they're holding the gun at you and they say, either you bow to the idol or you are dead, in many cases, it will be easier up for us to stand up to the trial and to allow ourselves to die of Kiddush Hashem. But you know what's more difficult? It's living with Kiddush Hashem. Like when you go through the daily grind of living, you know, when you don't feel like this is a big test and I'm going to be put up on the pedestal. No. When it's the daily kind of living and you have to live with Kiddush Hashem, you have to do something for the sake of Hashem, that's much more difficult. And that's the real test, living with Kiddush Hashem. And I, I, maybe, I, you know, I hope we have enough time. I'll talk a little bit about that as well uh, later on. But we should keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity for us to live with Kiddush Hashem. Because when you die with Kiddush Hashem, you're not given a choice. It's something that happens to you, whether you want it or not. Is the firefighter throwing you out the window just to save your life? Exactly. But to live in Kedusha that is your choice. That you can make a choice every single moment. Yes? Okay, so you probably want to hear about the story because that's, <laughs> that's what this podcast is supposed to be. What happened in the bus number two bombing, terror bombing. Okay, so first of all, the first thing I want to talk about is the Nisim Miracles. There were many miracles that happened. And we talk about miracles for a good reason. When Hashem does a miracle, it's we're supposed to talk about it. We need to talk about it. Because that sanctifies God's name. That praises him. Okay? Anytime my son-in-law, my daughter come to Shmuel and Navi Street, they make a special blessing. This is a place where you save my life. You bless Hashem. Did you right. do a miracle for me? You save my life. Right? They're often. No, but they go to Yerushalayim. So once in a while, they pass by Shmuel on every street. They have to stop and make a special blessing. Yes. So what are the Nisim that happened? So uh, as I said, there were five people in the family and four out of five were were saved. So I'll go from the lesser injury to the greater injury. Okay. So the the least injured was my six-year-old granddaughter. Now she was sitting together with her eight-year-old aunt. Okay, my son-in-law's sister, eight-year-old little girl, they were sitting together in a different place, not with the parents, but with, with the accordion, the, the rubber piece of accordion that attaches two buses together. They were sitting over there. That's a place that has less damage. Why does it have less damage in a bus bombing? Because when the explosion happens and the force of explosion hits the metal walls of the bus, metal and glass, then there's a rebound effect. There's like another force coming back off of the walls the metal walls and the glass, 
you know, there's what's called a rebound effect. It's like it, there's an explosion and then there's like the second type of an explosion. It's, it's, it's because the metal of the, of, of the, of the walls of the bus push that energy back. It ricochets so the, the force. It ricochets the force, exactly so. So now if you're sitting by the accordion, the rubber, the rubber part of the bus just tears apart. So there is no rebound effect. Okay? There is no head of school there. So that's why there's less injury over there. So this little six-year-old girl, she's, she, all of a sudden the bus is filling up with smoke. She cannot see anybody. She understands the bus is on fire. She doesn't know what to do. She can't find anybody. But she figures she was smart enough to know she better get off the bus. She walks off the bus. She was slightly injured. Um, and of course, she was covered in blood, you know, from other people. And a very kind person comes over to her and covers her eyes. Wow. She should not see the carnage all around. And then a very kind woman who lived on that street, she took her into her home and she bathed her and gave her new clothes, you no know, clean clothes, and called her grandmother, the other grandmother that lived in Yerushalayim. The other grandmother came and took her to Bika Holam Hospital. She had a slight injury. She had a piece of shrapnel in her neck. Now, and of course, the eardrums, all the, everybody's eardrums burst from the boom. I mean, that happens to everybody. Sometimes it heals on their own, on its own. And sometimes it's necessary to do surgery. But she had this little piece of shrapnel in her neck. And the doctor said she had a miracle because this piece of shrapnel was two millimeters away from the jugular blood vessel. That's the main blood, blood vessel. Had it punctured, she would have led to death. I mean, unquestionably. But, so that was her miracle. I was thinking about the, the person who covered her eyes, the sensitivity. Yes. Take her to the hospital is something anybody could think of. Yes, exactly so. Even it's taking like her a, into your house is something people will think of, but to cover her eyes, the sensitivity. Yes, yes. Oh. But she had this physical miracle of that she could have led to death and then was just like two millimeters away. Yes. So she was released from the hospital the next day. That was from Bika Holland Hospital. The next one that was injured, uh, the next level of injury was my son-in-law. My son-in-law was, it was very, very crowded bus. My daughter got on the back, the back door and she sat down on a chair on one place. There was one seat. She sat down with two little girls on her lap and was close to the back door. My son-in-law was standing next to the back door. When the explosion happened, he was blown off the bus through the back door. When he came to, when he came to consciousness, he saw that he was a vast distance away from the bus. He didn't know if he flew through the air at that vast distance or what happened. He had no idea that somebody moved to him. Did the bus continue rolling? But he was, he was blown out and smashed down onto the concrete pavement. They could have broken every bone in his body. It could have gotten a head injury. You know, he could have had a hemorrhage in his brain. It could have broken his spine. Anything could have happened from such you know, from such a kind of impact, right? So he had some broken bones, but not to, not to his brain, not to his head, not to his spine. He had a broken collarbone. He had broken toes. His shoes was, were riddled with, I don't want to, I'm calling them bullets. They're not bullets, but they're little metal balls. You know, the Rishoim, these evil people, sometimes they fill the bomb with metal balls, ball bearings, like pellets, like metal pellets. Yeah, like baby gun pellets, right? And the reason for that is, is that when they penetrate the body with the explosion, they can create a lot of internal damage, right? 
that's the purpose, right? So he had a lot of these bullets in his shoes and his, you know, and his, his, his toes were injured. He almost had one toe severed, but Baruch Hashem, they didn't, they managed to save it. Well, he had a lot of injuries, but nothing was life-threatening, okay? He had many injuries. And then there was the baby Shoshana. The baby Shoshana was a half year old. She was taken to the hospital. Um, she was found on the bus and taken to the hospital. She had a heat burn. Her face was, it wasn't burned from flames, but it was a heat burn. Now, even though she had been crying very, very severely, she'd been crying, 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 because when she got to the hospital, she had no voice left. Her voice was totally gone, but she'd been crying, but she managed to hold the pacifier in her mouth. You could see the outline of the pacifier, you know, because that part of her lips wasn't burnt, okay, from the heat. The doctor said it was a miracle she held the pacifier in her mouth, because had the mouth been totally open, she would have inhaled a lot, a lot of smoke, and that could have finished her off. A lot of damage, especially on the, 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 yeah, the little baby, right? It's not that much she, she can was, she wasn't even six months old. So, of course, yeah, in the hospital, they put her on a respirator. So she said that her lungs could clear out. And she had numerous injuries. She had scarring. She had a piece of shrapnel right next to her eye, but it didn't get into the eye. And uh, scarring on her arms, broken leg. Uh, yeah, a lot of different injuries, but none of them life-threatening. I mean, her lungs cleared out and she, she healed, but she has scars till today. She has scars till today. She's 19 years old and she's going through laser therapy today for her scarring 19 years later. So. Um, and I, I should have said this right at the beginning. I didn't. Uh, when I speak about my daughter, I will add something that I should have said right at the beginning. Uh, the next one that was injured was my daughter. Okay. My daughter was sitting with the two little girls on her lap the three-year-old and the six-month-old, and one survived and one didn't. She was severely injured in her hip. Now, this is 19 years old, but later my daughter just had a surgery. Now, now, month of August. She oh, really? Had to, she just had a surgery now, which was the damage that was a result of the bus bombing. Wow. 19 years later. It's, it was a, a second surgery. They had done the surgery earlier, and this was a revision of that, that earlier surgery. And she went to America for the surgery because she needed a big expert to do the surgery. So, the, so I should have said that right away from the beginning that this she or, if it gives anybody inspiration, if it does any good for anybody, it should be the Shalema, Fahana Shifra, Bas Bracha Peril, who just had a surgery, I don't know, a week and a half ago. Okay? Yes, Baruch Hashem. Uh, the doctors did a good job, and she should heal completely. So she did have a severe injury to her hip, not at the, not immediately, but later on she had a hip replacement, and she had many, many, many other injuries. But the miracle, okay, we're talking about miracles now. She had about nine of these pellets, metal pellets, in her body. Okay, she was sitting right next to the back door. That's where the that's where the terrorists got on the bus. He got on from the back door. He was dressed up as a Haredi Jew, okay? So nobody suspected him. And almost immediately he exploded because he got, up, he got on on Shmulanovi Street. But she was very close to the explosion. And she had these nine, I think it was about nine pellets in her body, okay? Not one of them touched a major organ. Not one. I, you know, this is force that they, they're flying in your body like bullets, right? 
not to the heart, not to the brain, not to the spine, not to the liver, not to the eye, not to the uterus, okay? She ended up having a lot of wounds, but no organ was. Now, the, the one organ that was damaged was the spleen. The spleen was, um, I don't know, was bleeding. It, there was an injury to the spleen. And she was in life danger for a short while because they thought the spleen might rupture and then she might need to have emergency surgery. But you know what? You can live without a spleen. <laughs> you cannot live without a liver, but you can live without a spleen. So the spleen did not rupture and Baruch Hashem, she stabilized. But can you believe this? Now, they left two of these bullets in her body where it was very difficult to remove it. And, you know, if it doesn't cause, da- cause a damage, doesn't cause infection, the body builds up a little shield around around these, these foreign bodies. You know, the body knows how to protect itself. So she has, she still has two of these bullets in her body. But from the seven they removed, again, I mean, this is like a miracle. No major organ was touched, not even an eye. She's right next to the explosion. It's incredible. Incredible, yes. And, okay, and then, of course, we have to talk about the little three-year-old Tehila Hashem Yimkom Dama, who did not survive. She had a head injury, the back of her head, and what, what the parents were told later on was that her body was intact. She did not lose a limb. She was recognizable. You know, her face was recognizable. And this was a very big comfort for the parents to know that that more or less the body was whole. It was a comfort for them. So this is the Zaka person who actually put her into the grave, told the parents this. So a lot of miracles. But now let's get to the story that I want to talk about. The Kiddush Hashem, the Achdus, the unit. Do you have any questions, by the way? I'm talking a lot. (laughs) (laughs) You're smiling when talking about the Achdus after talking about the death of your grandchild. Where do you get that strength from? Where do I get the strength from? Going from the pain of losing a grandchild and then you're able to just switch to just the Achdus and the beauty in it, seeing the good. Did you see this in the moment or did you process this all afterwards? You know, it's like you see the goodness you know, on the one hand, and then you cry on the other hand, you know, you see the pain of, of your loved one suffering, and that hurts you, and you, you're very involved with the pain. Uh, but then on the other hand, you see the beauty of the achtos and the, and the chesed. Uh, it's like, it was like a balancing act, right? Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so you'll hear, you'll hear, as I tell you the examples, you'll understand where you get your strength from, Okay. Okay. It's not like it's not like I was perfect all the time, you know. Again, it was a balancing act. So Hashem did a very big chesed with me right from the beginning, even before the tragedy. Hashem did a chesed with me. A very good friend of mine from Muncie, New York, came to visit in Israel. She came to my home to visit. She was in my home and she slept over that night. Okay, so she was with me, a very close friend. Okay. So we heard in the news about the bus bombing was about 9.30 at night. And we were very, very upset. And, you know, we all said to heal him. And I forgot. It's like crazy. How could I forget? But I forgot that my daughter, the, the, the Natanson family, who were my next door neighbors in where I live in Zechon Yaakov in the north of Israel. They were my next door neighbors, but they were vacationing in Yerushalayim. I just forgot about that. 
I had even another daughter who was vacationing with her family in Yerushalayim. Forgot about it. So it wasn't like we were worried that some of our family got injured. We just felt we felt connected to whoever was injured, whoever was Lolena, whoever was killed. We said to Hillen, we said a lot of to Hillen, we went to sleep. We went to sleep and then we get a call late at night. It wasn't even so late. It was like 1230 at night. We get a call from Ezenitzion, somebody from Ezenitzion, one of the organizations that helped the injured. And my husband picked up the phone and we were told that the Natanzan family was on the bus. My do- Our daughter, Hannah, was in Hadassah Hospital. Our son-in-law, Metania, was in Sharit Shedek Hospital. Yehudit was in Bikaholam Hospital with the other grandmother, and the two little girls were as yet unidentified. What that means is when the rescuers come to remove the people from the bus, they don't know who belongs to who, right? They see a baby, they put them on the ambulance. See, uh, you know, people are not talking. They don't say, this is my baby, where's my child, where's my husband, where's my wife? Nobody, they just take the injured, put them in an ambulance, and send them off the hospital. Nobody knows who belongs to whom, Right. So the families are separated. So we didn't know where the two little girls were. They may have been in some of the hospitals that, you know, and, and relatives run around, the rel- relatives of injured, the relatives of, of, of deceased people, they run from hospital to hospital looking to see if one of their relatives are there, right? So the two little girls, the, 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 the six-month-old and the three-year-old were unidentified at that point. So we were told that we should go to the hospital, we should send someone to Sharit Sedek to the son-in-law, we should send somebody to Hadassah to the daughter, and we should send somebody to Abu Kabir, the mortuary, to see if the bodies were there. So we decided, of course, you know, my first reaction when, when I hear the news, the first reaction is you just scream. You know, you just scream. There's, there's, no, there's no crying and there's no words of tefillah. There's no prayer. It's just a scream from the depths because it just, it's like, I don't know. I, I can't even explain it, but this reminds me of the shofar. The sound of the shofar that just comes from the deepest place. It's just meant to connect you to Hashem. It's a cry of desperation that doesn't even have words. Okay. So, Afterwards, after the first scream, which is your first reaction, and you begin crying, and then, and then you go into shock. When you go into shock, you sort of go into automatic mode. Automatic means you're not thinking too much. You can't really think. You can't process. You just, you just do things automatically. Okay. And that's how I was feeling at the moment. You know, what do I have to take with me to the hospital? I have to take my cell phone, my my, my charger, uh, a head covering, whatever it was. So. Me and my husband were going to go to Hadassah Hospital. My friend came along with me, and she, she said she's coming with me to the hospital. I said, no, you're not. You're on vacation now. I don't want you to spend your time in the hospital. You're on vacation. No, 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 I'm coming with you. And she came with me, and it was a tremendous, tremendous support. So that's why I say it was a very big chesed. So me and my husband went to Hadassah Hospital. We sent two of our sons to Sharit Sedek Hospital, and we sent another son and son-in-law to the mortuary, Abu Kabir, to see if they could identify anybody. So, of course, we were in a terrible state, you can imagine. Um, on the way to the hospital, before we got there, we get a message that Shoshana, the baby, was found. She was identified in Sharit Sedek Hospital by one of the relatives. So we knew she was alive. So that was felt like tachiyat <laughs> amitim. 
I, I don't know. I can't say it in any other words. We just felt like Tchiyas Amesim, that, you know, somebody came to life who we thought was dead, but we still didn't know what happened to Tehila. Later on, when my son went to the mortuary, so they, they, they didn't want to take people's um, they didn't want it that they didn't want people to identify. They said people are hysterical, they're going to make wrong identifications, you know, small children, you can't really tell. They 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 insisted on doing a DNA test, and that was later on. The DNA test the next day showed that Tahila had been killed. So we get to the hospital about 2:30 a.m. My daughter had been to two surgeries. She had a hip surgery and she had another surgery on her face. And she was in the recovery room, and we were, not, we were not allowed to see her at that time. We had to wait around. At 4 a.m., they allowed us into the recovery room. So it was me, my husband, and my friend accompanying me. And we go into the third, into recovery room, and this is 4 a.m., and the explosion happened at about 9 on, I mean, I think it was 9 or 9.30 p.m., so my daughter was in and out of consciousness. She was in and out of consciousness. Every time she sort of woke up, she would ask the nurses or the doctors, what happened to my family? She had no clue. She had no knowledge if whether her husband and children were alive. And this was agonizing, you can imagine. Yeah. And nobody knew. What did they know? They don't know. The families are separated. So she had no idea what happened to her family. So when she, she was awake and she saw me and she oh, he was thanking me for coming. I felt like crying. <laughs> what are you thanking me for coming? Of course I'm coming. And she said, what's well, so with my family? I told her. So I said, Amatani is in Sharit Sedeq. It's being taken care of. Shashan is being taken care of. Sharit Sedeq. Yehudatism be him, And they're looking for Tehillah. So she said, what do you mean they're looking for Tehillah? I said, well, they're still running around from hospital to hospital trying to find her. Okay. We had a social worker with us. And the social worker had the presence of mind. She said, would you like to speak to your husband? So she said, of course I would. So he had his cell phone with him. He, he actually had his cell phone with him. So the social worker called his cell phone and my daughter spoke to her husband. And it was like, <laughs> it was like the, the chesed. You can't, believe, you can't understand the chesed. That you could hear her husband talking rationally, you know, with a normal voice that I'm okay. Like she's saying, I'm okay. How are you? He's saying, I'm okay. How are you? It was like, you know, it was a tremendous chesed that she even thought of it, the social worker. All right. So we're there. My, my daughter's in and out of consciousness. You know, she lapses into uh, a coma-like state. And as I'm there next to her bed, all of a sudden, a group of people walk into a group of people walk into this cover room and they looked at me like they were a television crew. That's the way it appeared. You know, cameras, lights and a whole crew. And they were talking English. I said to the nurse, what are these people doing here? So she said to me that Hadassah had had a policy up until this point in time. They had a policy never to let the media into the recovery room. We're talking about the trauma section of the hospital. This is a trauma section recovery room. They never let the media into this part of the hospital. But then they changed the policy. And the reason why they changed the policy was because what does the world know? The world knows, oh, the poor Palestinians, they have no choice but just to blow themselves up. So they wanted to show the world the other side of the coin. Look what these poor Palestinians are doing to us. 
And that's when they had just, I don't know if it was a day or two or three before they changed their policy. So here you have this television crew in the recovery room. And obviously they're looking to interview somebody. And I heard them speaking English. And I say to my friend, I don't want to be on television. I mean, that's like very foreign to me, you know, to, to appear on television. That was out of my, um, how should I say it? out of my circle <laughs> you know I don't live we don't live I don't live my life that way anyway it's beyond out of your comfort zone exactly I don't I don't know about today but I'm saying 19 years ago that's way itself so um I say to my friend you know and again I'm talking and I'm talking normally and rationally and I'm not dissolving in tears because I was in shock and I was in this sort of automatic type of uh, you know autopilot kind of a mode I say to my friend, oh, you know, could this, this could be Kiddush Hashem. You think I should give them an interview? So she says, of course, it could be Kiddush Hashem. But you have Kach for this. So I said, I don't know. I, I, think, I, think, I think I can do it. Again, it's because I could not think. I could not plan. My, my brain wasn't working. You know, when you have an overload, when you have too much emotion, overload, I think about the electric box. When you have an overload in the electric box, you get a short circuit, right? Something oh. closes down, right? And that's how I was like closed down. I was like numbed out, so to speak, in shock. So of course I couldn't think, I couldn't plan. I could, you know, my mind wasn't working, but I just figured that if Hashem sent the English speaking television crew into recovery room when I'm there, Maybe it means I'm supposed to say, I don't know what to say, but Hashem will give me the words. So they hear me talking English and they come over to, can we interview you? And I said, yes. So they had to set up the equipment. It took them about 10 minutes to set up the equipment. During the 10 minutes, what I was doing inside of myself, I was saying, Hashem, Hashem, you open my lips and you give me the words to give your praise, to say your praise. That's what I'm saying as, you know, as a mantra over and over again. All right. So also, I wasn't going to give an interview to any program. I want to know if they were pro-Palestinian, these people. So I asked the main person there, I said, what's the name of your program? Who are you? You know, where are you coming from? What's your program? So he says, my private program, this happened to be a black man, Afro-American. He says, my private program, and I call it the right side. I said, what do you mean the right side? Yeah, we're looking for the right side. We're looking for the truth. I don't know what he said to me. I think it was a Christian type of a program, if I'm not mistaken. So it sounded to me okay. I said, okay. And that's how I prepared myself. Hashem, Hashem, open my lips and give me the right words to say. So then the man asked me what happened. So I didn't tell him what happened. <laughs> I started saying other things. I said, you know, they don't want peace and I'm looking for peace. Nobody can give us peace. Not, not Bush. And that Powell, and that Arafat, and that the UN, nobody can give us peace. Only God can give us peace. And I'm talking on and on like that. He says, okay, he, he agreed with me. But he says, well, but what happened? <laughs> That's what he came to hear. I said, well, I told him whatever I knew, which was very little. I didn't know very much. But I said, but they're still looking for Tehillah. Because we didn't know for sure if she was alive or not. My daughter, my daughter was sleeping, you know, she was like in a coma, but then she hears the words, they're looking for Tehillah, and all of a sudden she wakes up, she wakes up, she sort of sits up, she sees a bunch of people around her bed, she has no idea what's going on, but she just looks at them, and she says, if you want to help me, pray, 
if you want to help me and all of us pray and try to be better people, try to do something to be better, even a little bit, even a little bit better, even something so small, maybe just smiling at each other. And then she was out cold. Wow. And you should have seen those people. Now, this, this daughter of mine was all of 26 years old, okay? And this came straight from a shim. <laughs> and that, I looked at that man. He was like, he was shaking. He couldn't believe what he just heard. He turns to the camera and he says, look at this woman. She's fighting for her life. And what is she thinking about? How the world can save itself. And then I tell you the truth. I don't remember the rest of the interview, but this was like... This was like magic. It was like custom made. You know, if this program is aired in America, how many, how many people, how many millions of people are going to hear that you have to pray, that there's a God to pray to? You know, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's going to do something, right? And then they left. And then the woman from Hadassah, she was a public relations woman. She was the one who brought them in. She said, Bracha, that's my name, right? Bracha, we have had many interviews in Hadassah Hashem. This is the first time that people are hearing what they have to hear. Okay, Baruch Hashem. I said it was custom made. You know, I, I was not able to think, believe you me. It was like Hashem put the words in my mouth. Okay. I said to my friend, I can't believe this. I just can't believe this. This is Kiddush Hashem. And, you know, if you look, if you look for the opportunity, the opportunity comes. But if you don't look for the opportunity, it can pass you by, right? I could have easily said, no, I don't give interviews. I don't have the strength for it. This was the first interview of many, many, many interviews. It was like unreal. They kept on coming back for more and more and more. They had never heard these things before. I'll give you some examples, okay? The most secular, secular newspapers, the most lefty newspapers. You know, I'm, I don't read newspapers, so I don't really know. But I think Ma'arid and Haaretz. I think they're all pretty leftist type newspapers. You know, they're not pro-religion type of papers, right? We had a man coming from the Ma'ariv. He came on Shabbos. He came on Shabbos to interview us. So Definitely said, not religious then. Huh? Definitely not religious. Definitely not religious. <laughs> we said, we don't give interviews on Shabbos. He said, I'm not going to write anything down. We don't give interviews on Shabbos. So we made him wait. He waited a good hour. And he was very kind. He offered us his lighter for Havdala because we didn't have a candle. <laughs> so he was very proud to offer us his lighter. And then my daughter, she's 26 years old, remember? He says to her, well, what happened to you? Now, she's in the week of Shiva, remember? Okay, she's not only injured, she's in, the, everybody's injured, her husband, her children, she, she's in pain and she's mourning a child, right? Well, she couldn't be there for Tehillah's Leviah. She what? She wasn't able to make it to the burial, was she? No, she wasn't able to go. No, my son-in-law went. She wasn't able to go. Wow. So anyway, he says to her, what happened? You know, what happened to you? So she says, I thank Hashem for my pain. And he looks at her like she's crazy. What do you mean, thank God for your pain? And I thank Hashem for my pain. And this man thought she's crazy, like she's deranged. Who, who thanks God for their pain? So he says, what do you mean? So she says, I thank God for my physical pain because I'm not feeling my emotional pain. In other words, she was thanking for the fact that the physical pain was so overwhelming that they couldn't let her feel the full effect of the emotional pain. It was a, it was a protection from it. Exactly. Wow. And this man was so impressed. Again, what are they used to hearing? 
Take on the government, revenge, throw the Arabs into the sea, whatever people yell and scream. Your vengeance, right? yeah. And here she's thanking God for her pain because it's protecting her from something, from this emotional pain. He was so impressed. He had a big headline in his newspaper. We have the newspaper clippings. He modala Hashem and then explains what she meant. And he was like so impressed. And I mean, anybody would be impressed. We're talking about a young girl. You're not talking about, you know, a sage, a Torah sage, right? Then we had the man from the Haaretz. The Haaretz, I think, is even, even less pro, yeah. pro more and more lefty. This man writes, I'm 73 years old. I never had a good word to say about these people. But now I do. Wow. Because, again, they're hearing. They're hearing the quality, you know. Hashem loves us. Hashem takes care of us. Hashem knows what he's doing. We accept what's going on. We need to be better. You know, like these kind of things, I never heard it. Then I had I had the, the woman from, from the Jerusalem Post. She came to interview me. And I said, you know what? I'll give you an interview on one condition only. If you write it the way I say it, don't change my words around. You know how often that's what they do. They change it. They leave out half a sentence. You get the wrong meaning. Mm-hmm. I said, write it the way I'm telling it to you. So she said, I'll do my best. And she did. She was very good about it. I even called her up to thank her. So she asked me, are you angry at, aren't you angry at the murderer? And I look at her like, what? Angry at the murderer? I'm not thinking about the murderer. I mean, I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about how to help my daughter. I'm thinking about how I can be a better person. I'm thinking about what does Amisra have to do to, 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 to get the, the, the final Geula Shalema. I mean, I, that's what I'm thinking about. I said, why would I waste my energy on thinking about hating the, the murderer? Hashem is going to, he's, anyway, he's, I don't know, he's burning in hell anyway. <laughs> I mean, yeah. well, I'd have to put my mind on him. I, that's not my concern. That's not my concern right now. And she was very impressed. And she, she wrote that. I mean, she wrote it in the way I said it. And it was, again, I think, you know, the way I see it, I see it as a big Kiddush Hashem. Over and over and over again. Um, there was an, another amazing story. Maya Bloomberg. Maya Bloomberg was the mayor of New York at that time. And he felt solidarity with Israel. He decided he was coming to Israel. He came for a six-hour visit to Israel. In the six hours, he came to Hadassah Hospital to to visit the Americans. There were two American families, my daughter and another one. He came to to visit the Kotel Maravi, the Western Wall, and he went and wanted to go on on, on the number two bus, okay, to show people you don't have to be afraid of getting on the number two bus. Okay, so now Hadassah Hospital wanted to make a big show for Bloomberg. Why? They were building a new wing another wing to the hospital and they needed money they needed donations so they wanted to butter up Bloomberg giving him a lot of cover a lot of honor so that he should make a nice donation to Hadassah hospital right so they can they build a stage and they bring in the television and people are going to talk and give him a lot of you know make a whole big spiel so they asked my daughter Hani if she could please talk uh, because she's American she talks English so they wanted her to say thank you Hadassah for saving my life which is a legitimate request, right? But Hani didn't want to. First of all, she's in tremendous pain, physical pain. Mm-hmm. Secondly, she's in Shiva. She's in the week of Shiva. What do you want from her, you know? But they kept on begging and begging and begging and begging. And she felt her courage at all. She felt gratitude to the hospital. So she felt she had to, she had to acquiesce. 
So she said, okay, she just doesn't want the television on her face. The television could be near her, around her, on the side of her, whatever, but not on her face. And she will give her, she will say her little speech. Okay. So here she is on stage and the Hadass is waiting for Hani, not to say, thank you, Hadass, for saving my life. So what does Hani say? Thank you, Hashem, for saving my life. And also thank Hadassah Hospital for saving my life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Not what they expected. No. Nobody, and nobody primed her. Okay, this is all <clears throat> coming from her. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, so, I mean, I could go on and on and on with stories, but we have to, you know, we have to conclude at some point. So that was, that was about the Kiddush Hashem. And again, on and on. Two weeks later, they're still interviewing me. Two weeks later. I mean, you know, we went to hospital for two weeks and then we went home. But one thing I want to say, this is very amazing. They kept on asking me again and again. I kept on hearing it from all different people. Where do you get your strength from? Exactly as you asked me. Yeah. Where do you get your strength from? So for me, it's like a, plain answer i get it from god you know that's like obvious isn't it but then you know i kept on hearing this question and i kept on then i understood it differently i understood it it's not they want to know where i get it from they're asking where do you get strength from like i wouldn't have strength i would fall apart in the situation how do you get strength in such a situation that's what i was hearing after a while that's why i was interpreting the question a little bit differently so i started answering differently I well, say, a reframe is how can I also get that strength? Exactly so. Exactly so. Like they're searching. Mm-hmm. I need strength. Where does it come from? So I said to them like this. I said, look, if you pray for strength, you get strength. If you don't pray, you don't get it. And of course, when I'm talking about prayer, I'm praying to the one who can give. If you ask for advice, you ask for resources, you pray for it, you're going to get it. If you don't ask for resources, you won't get it. But who has it to give will give it to you if you ask for it. So they were hearing something a little bit different. And again, I can tell you more than once, I could see tears in their eyes as they were listening to us. Okay. Um, I have to say one other story. And Netanya, uh, uh, Bibi, okay. Netanyahu comes, yeah. Yeah, comes to visit my daughter. He wasn't prime minister at that time, but he was, he was in the government, the minister. <clears throat> So of course, he's giving his condolences, et cetera, et cetera. And then he asked the question, do you think if the Likud would have been in power, this would not have happened? <clears throat> As though the Likud could save people's lives, right? If God decreed, God decreed, you know, is it going to be Likud going to save people's lives? You know, I mean, this is, where's the decree coming from? <clears throat> if you think this, do you think that if the Likud would have been in power, this would not have happened? So little Hani looks at him and she says, you're all puppets on strings. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and he got shocked. That's I mean, incredible. he got shocked to hear this little girl talking to him like that. And he says, well, in that case, pray to the one that's pulling the strings to give you a full shalema. And she says, that's exactly what I'm doing. And he left. <laughs> so you're talking about Kiddush Hashem. You see, do you see what I'm talking about? And we have to, again, realize, let it happen, not in time of tragedy only. Let it be an ongoing thing in our lives. Okay, the chesed, I'm going to make it short. The chesed was unbelievable. Every single type of Jew was there doing chesed. You know, that's the achdus. Every kind of Jew. You know, we're Haredi people. We don't have exactly friends, you know, and, you know, in different circles. Uh, not that I'm against anybody. I'm not. It's just that that's the way people run their lives. They have their own circles, right? 
he had every single type of person in the world was there, you know. I'm not just talking about black keeper or keeper sruga, you know, a nidda keeper, black keeper, every type, no keeper, you know, to their eyebrows, no head coverings, you know, like every single type of person. Everybody wanted to help. They wanted to help. What can we do? What can we do? There was there was a <clears throat> there were two girls who came. Two girls. They said we were in the Subaru. Remember Subaru sure. restaurant that exploded. It was before before Honey's. Uh, maybe a year before, we were in a Subaru explosion. We thought it was the end of our lives. But here, look at us. We're al- alive. We're functioning. And they're going to hospitals, visiting people. And they give her encouragement, you know. There was a man in a wheelchair. He was paralyzed from shrapnel. I don't know exactly what paralyzed him. But from a terror attack, he came with flowers, Erev Shabbos, to bring flowers. And... Yeah, like, again, one family, there was, there was so much help that we got from one family, the organization. Um, I had to microwave my daughter's uh, honey's food. She, she could only eat blended food because she had an injury on her face. So she could only blend the food and people were sending in food. You know, she didn't want to rely on the kashrut of the hospital. People were sending food and special food, healthy food. I had to microwave it to warm it up, right? And the microwave is not kosher. Because you have you religious students, you have Arabs in the hospital, right? So you have to wrap up the food and a double wrapping and you have to wait online so the microwave is available. So it was very difficult to get her, her food ready on time. And so I said to one family, to somebody from the organization, you know, maybe you could bring me a used microwave, a kosher microwave oven, then you're not going to borrow for the time we're in the hospital. So I said, no problem. The next day, a new microwave in the box brand new from the store, given to us as a gift. I said, I thought we were lend, borrowing it, you know, just for, no, 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 it's yours, keep it, take it home. We had our own private microwave, no problem. Um, the, the baby in, in Shari Tepic Hospital, her stroller was destroyed. And the girls, my, my two daughters and, and my son-in-law's sister were taking care of the baby around the clock. And, you know, a baby has to be occupied. They needed a stroller to walk around with her. One family bought them a stroller. No problem. Um, people came. People came from America. People came from America that didn't know us. That had nothing to do with us. They read about the, the bombing and it was so dramatic that people got on planes, came to us. There was this woman. My, my daughter remained friends with her long term. She was a teacher, Dale. Her name is Dale. She came into the room and says, how can I help you? She takes out a checkbook. How can I help you? And she writes a check for something that we needed. (laughs) Just like that. Strangers. And she wasn't the only one. There were quite a few like that. And the thing is this. You don't feel, you don't feel any separation. You don't feel any kind of division. You know, like I'm saying, what kind of kippah is he wearing? You know, what kind of head covering is she wearing? Does she have stockings? Doesn't she have stockings? You don't, you don't, that doesn't enter your mind. You just felt connected. You felt one family. And that's what we were. We actually are one family, but we don't think of it that way. And that's the kind of feeling that I never experienced any other time. That, that, that unity. And I have to talk about the Bikur Cholim girls. There's an organization, Bikur Cholim, and they had a, a group of girls, volunteers, that came. You know, you have to understand, we, we were in the hospital 24-7 you know, with the injured. 24-7, we're in the hospital. Now, people have to get sleep. You can't just go, you know, without sleep. 
So I'm, I'm at the end of the day and I'm falling asleep in my chair and I don't know how I'm going to stay through the night with my daughter. And then this girl walks in and she says, oh, Miss Taparovas, go home. Go. Do you have a place to go to sleep? Go to sleep. I'm staying with your daughter overnight. I said, what? Yeah, I'm going to be here every night. I'll be with your daughter. You can go home wherever you, you can go. If you have a place to go, go home to sleep. And that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I had the mother's house not too far away in Baitlagan. And I went there to sleep every night. And Shabbos, Shabbos, we'll stay Shabbos in the hospital. This was vacation time. A lot of these girls work, but, you know, they're teachers or whatever. They were on vacation. Well, say Shabbos, you don't have to be here Shabbos in the hospital. And this was like, it was, it was with a smile. It was like, you didn't feel that, 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 that it's an imposition. It was done with the fullness of their heart. Anything you wanted, they got for you. Honey complained a little bit about the pillows. The pillows were too hard. She, she used a lot of pillows to support her body in, in different positions because she was very injured. So she needed, and she needed soft pillows. The next day, she, they come in with a fluffy, soft pillow. I mean, it was like amazing. Um, we, we stayed friends with some of these girls for a long time as well. It was so beautiful. I said, where do you get this connection? Where do you get this outpouring, this outpouring? I remember when my two teenage girls wanted to come from Zichron Yaakov, which is in the north, to Jerusalem. It's a good two-hour drive. And they called up a taxi to drive the next day to drive over to the hospital. So the woman, they called a woman taxi driver in Zechon Yaakov, and she said, I'll take you. But she didn't want any money. She didn't want any money for taking them. She took them just, you know, for free. Again and again, over and over again. It was like, what can I tell you? This is what I'm saying. Hashem pushes us. If we don't do it on our own in the good times, when things are smooth sailing, when things are going well, then Hashem creates a situation that's going to push us in that direction. And that's the message. It should not be forgotten, right? If so, if we're 19 years later and we're forgetting the messages, and okay, there were other tragedies. I'm not saying, you know, every tragedy engenders this type of chesed and, and, and so on. But again, for me personally, because I was involved with the family, I say, let's not forget the messages. That's what we talk about. Why do we talk about the Holocaust till today? Why do we talk about things that happened based on Mekdosh and, you know, during the Chorban? We talk about it because it's meant to give us a message. So I want to, I want to end up with, okay, not only reliving these, these important messages. Okay, we said Tefillah, how important Tefillah is. How important Achtos, Techez, Bekidosh Hashem. Keep these ideas in mind. But not only that, I want to end up with a very positive message. Uh, you know, after all this lengthy <laughs> talking about the tragedy. And the tragedy was very, very big. It was a very big tragedy. I mean, there were children who lost their eyes. I mean, very big tragedy. Very, very tragic. You can imagine. 130 people were injured. Not only 22 killed. 130 were injured. Right. And as we discussed, an injury doesn't mean you know, a fractured wrist. It's the injuries could be anywhere from a scrape to limbs gone. Exactly. So and my daughter, 19 years later, she's still undergoing surgery for something that was caused by not directly, a little bit indirectly, but still a cause from the, her original injuries. Yes. So I want to end up with something very positive and, and, and we have to take this to mind because it's very relevant. Okay. 
So we are afraid of the Arabs and, and, and we don't know what they're going to do next. And, you know, you get on a bus and you don't know if you're going to get home. You know, you, you know, you're standing at a bus stop and you don't know if you're going to be rammed or not. I mean, this is ongoing in Israel. You know, you live in America. I don't know what it's like where you live, but for us, this is this is ongoing. Yes. Oh, yeah. I remember when I was in Israel, I was on a bus and it was during the times when missiles kept getting shot into Jerusalem and we're on the bus. There's a siren, which means there's a missile on the way. We stop the bus, go into a shelter, wait, siren's over, go back in the bus and move on. It, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's just part of the life there. But it creates tension all the time. You sure. know, it's, it's not a healthy situation, obviously, <laughs> to say the least. Right. And that, oh, by the way, because I work with what's called mind-body healing, you know, um, you, you know, utilizing the mind's in conjunction with the body, you know, for healing, you know, there's been lots of different techniques today. As a result of this story, okay, um, I mean, I was working in the field before the, the tragedy happened. Uh, I'm a certified hypnotherapist and, and, you know, I use guided imagery and NLP. But as a result of this tragedy, <clears throat> I learned uh, extensively how to work with trauma and I learned extensively pain management which was very, it was very, very relevant with my daughter and, you know, her family. So as I said, I want to end up with something positive and I hope it'll, I hope it'll waken up, awaken something now, especially before Rosh Hashanah, especially before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Hadin. So remember how we said that what was the, what was the foundation, the spiritual foundation to Yishmael? We said it was Hagar's tefillah, right? Mm-hmm. The prayer of Hagar. That's why the Malach tell, tells her, call him Yishmael, Kishama Hashem El Onir, Hashem heard. Now, if, if, the, if the Malach said Kishama Hashem El Onir, then his name should have been Shema'el, right? Mm-hmm. If you're talking about Hashem heard your cries, so the name should have been Shema, Shema'el, Hashem heard, right? But well, we call him Yishmael. Why? Why Yishmael in the future rather than Shema'el? This is giving us a hint for something very important. So Rabbi Eliezer and his Birkid de Rabbi Eliezer writes this. Okay, I, I didn't make anything up. <laughs> Except where I told you I had my own insights. But this right, is okay. <laughs> okay, so Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer tells us, he, he writes in the Birkid de Rabbi Eliezer, why is his name Yishmael and not Shema'el? In the future, Hashem will hear the crying out. The na'aka is a, is a word for crying out as a result of suffering. In the future, Hashem will hear the na'aka our crying out, ours. In the end of days, Yishmael is going to make us a lot of trouble a lot of suffering, and Hashem will hear our tefillah. The yishma in the future is a hint that it's for us that Hashem is going to listen. It's going to listen to our crying. And na'aka is a word. It's one of the different shonot of tefillah, one of the different versions that you can say tefillah prayer. It's a kind of crying out as a result of being, it being in suffering, of, 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 of you know painful suffering. So that's the, what we have to learn from Yishmael. Yeah, true, they're creating a lot of suffering for us. But Hashem is going to listen to us versus wow. to them. Okay, Even though they may have that, you know, quote unquote, superpower 
of prayer yes. is it's being sent over to us so we can utilize it during this last you know last stage of, of Gullus. Right. We shouldn't forget. We think they they have their power. Okay, but we have an even greater one, right? It's like you say, a little bit of light gets rid of a lot of darkness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You just need one little match and you light up the darkness, right? So we just need, we need to have the right intention. So we, a lot of us, you know, we pray like robots. We open the city, we pray like robots. We say a bracha and the food like robots. Birkat Amazon, you know, after eating a meal, we say Birkat Amazon like a robot. But don't. A little bit, just a little bit of intention, a little bit of strength. Strike the from the strike of edge, a little bit, even just a little bit. Now, I took on a Kabbalah. What's a Kabbalah? I, I said, listen, I better, I have to do something to improve my life, you know, after this story happened to me, to my family. So one Kabbalah, <laughs> I can't say I'm so perfect, but I'll, I'll tell you what my Kabbalah is. My Kabbalah is what you can do today, don't push off for tomorrow, because mm-hmm. you never know what tomorrow will bring. Don't procrastinate. You can do it today, do it today. Do it now. You know, the, our sages tell us, live each day as though it were your last. And that's not meant to depress us. It's meant to tell us, take advantage. You have another day, utilize it. You know, mm-hmm. don't let the day get wasted. You know, maybe you don't have tomorrow. Utilize today. And so when we wake up in the morning, we say, Moda, I need, thank you, Hashem, for giving me a renewed life. Ah, it's another opportunity to do Kiddush Hashem, Achdut, Chesed, to do what Hashem wants and enables us to earn eternity for ourselves. You know, every day is a gift and we should look at it as a gift. And some people, you know, when they wake up in the morning, they don't feel like getting up. They have a hard life. You know, they say, I'd rather not have woken up. Yeah. You know, some people feel like that. But it's, adva- it's an advantage. It's, it's an opportunity. To, it shouldn't be lost. Don't lose the opportunity. You have so much you can do in a day. Utilize the day. Even if it's one small thing, just like Hani said to those people. In a coma-like stage, she says that people do one small thing, maybe just even smiling at each other. Just a little bit more. That's, it could be, that's the match that you need to light. To spill the darkness. Now, Mr. Robert, you only have about two minutes left. Uh, speaking of Midos, I know you're 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 going to be um, starting a workshop for L specifically. Do you want to give us some information about that? Sure. So again, we have to do a little introspection now before Yom Hadin, before Rosh Hashanah. So I put together a short workshop utilizing the techniques that I utilize, which is guided imagery, NLP, energy medicine, relaxation techniques. Uh, a very you know various different techniques but i put together very simple easy to learn easy to use exercises which i call it tikkun amidot uh, character uh, refinement you know fixing amidot getting rid of anger getting rid of resentment getting rid of jealousy bringing in the positivity thinking positive acting positive um sometimes you know we want to do it we just don't know how we think it's harder than it really is. It could be much easier than we think it is. So these are very powerful techniques. I've been giving this workshop for many, many years in different forms. And I see amazing results. Anybody who would love to join, I'm starting next week. This Rosh Hashem on Tuesday evening. Well, oh, which day? Oh, well, Israel, it's evening. America, it's afternoon. Okay, okay so that's uh, starting uh, September 6th. Exactly. Tuesday. Okay. Uh, it should be like from 1 to 3 p.m. in the United States. And in Israel, it's between 8 to 10 p.m. 
Okay, so anyone, when this is everyone is welcome. Anybody who would like to join or find out more information uh, can email me. Okay. What is your um, email address? Brachatop. Okay, I'll spell it. B-R-A-C-H-A-T-O-P. Brachatop, that's my name, at gmail.com. Okay, amazing. And when this podcast is published, um, the workshop will be starting tomorrow. So s- sign up now. <laughs> exactly. Uh, thank exactly. you so much for your time, Mrs. Tuparovich. Really, it's been a pleasure. Uh, this has been a, an incredible, incredible discussion. And this is my second time hearing the story. And I don't know if you noticed, I, I was still tearing up. It's just, it's something that is, it's it's incredible. We should all just be able to keep this all in mind. It's It's something that... It sounds like when you have it, when times are good, that when you have those challenges, it's a lot easier to implement. You know, you're a lemon with more juice in it. Hashem doesn't have to squeeze you as hard. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Well, it's that's just, what we hope. You know, sometimes it's just a little switch, just a little bit to alter. You know, like my daughter, Hani, she suffered so much and she would cry. Obviously, people cry when they're suffering. And she says, whenever she'd feel like crying, she would grab it, grab it to heal him. So she says she should put the emotion into the words of to heal him and connect to Hashem. Like killing two birds with one stone. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing wrong with crying over your own tragedy. You know, that's, that's perfectly normal. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like when you pray for yourself, pray for Hashem at the same time. Channeling it. Pray for Gola Shalem at the same time. Amazing. That's what you would say. Yes. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate your time. Okay, my and, pleasure. And it uh-huh. should be, I hope, Bezrat Hashem, it should rouse people and give them some inspiration and even maybe some practical tools for their lives. Oh, man. Thank you so, so much. Cultive. Take care. Cult- all the best. Cultive.